politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Paul Revere's to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house, your only independent conservative voice that actually is fighting the great second American revolution here. And folks, we are actually going to find a couple of others that are joining us in this fight that have been our fellow Paul Revere's in a couple moments. But um, first off, just remember, this is your last day for $30 off an entire year's content of Blaze TV, just 69 bucks. BlazeTV.com forward slash CR, promo code Daniel. Um, this is literally the last day. It is going away forever after this. So I'm just telling you, um, with all the censorship going on, if you want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, this is where you need to go. Now, speaking of the truth, it is kind of eerie how every prediction the few of us that had the gumption to fight this from day one made, they turn out to be true. You know, one of the points we made <clears throat> was that this virus was really spreading asymptomatically or somewhat symptomatically as well. Long before this, it was inconceivable given the degree of travel we have from China, even Wuhan itself, that this wasn't brought in um, in earnest in January, but really even before that. So now we have two at least anecdotal Stories from one from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, one from outside Seattle, Washington, where people who got sick in December um, pretty seriously uh, now tested positive for antibodies. Again, it's not 100% proof, but another feather in the cap. Um, We have tons more data and serology tests that are literally honing in on the same numbers we put out. A lot of people yesterday were like, Daniel, you cherry-picked the Netherlands. Go look at the Spain study. Now, they said that because the top line of the Spain study had a 1.2% infection fatality rate, but as I predicted, um, that would be lopsided, which is our entire point, by the plus 80 cohort, actually particularly males, and it turned out that was the case because if you look, certainly those below 60 especially, it literally tracked almost exactly with the Netherlands, with Denmark, and with the top lines that we see in all the American studies. Um, Because remember, if you're seeing a fatality rate um, in the plus 80 cohort that's 30 times above the top line, and the largest raw numbers are coming of deaths are coming from the plus 80 age group. So then you're easily going to have all the cohorts in their forties and fifties, twenties and thirties that are going to be at least 30 times below the top line number. And that has been our entire point here. Um, one other thing, I have an article out today, very comprehensive list of all of the curves that have spiked as a result of lockdown, who is going to flatten those curves? The economic damage, the lives lost from mental health, suicide, uh, tr- uh, lack of transplants, stroke in particular, a heart, uh, cancer, obviously. So some good data um, links in that piece. It's not an exhaustive list because the article was already 1,500 words and you're never supposed to write that long, but we can go on and on. Um. Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, November 4th, 2006. They said the following. The negative consequences of large-scale quarantine are so extreme, 
parentheses, forced confinement of the sick with the well, complete restriction of movement of large populations, difficulty in getting critical supplies, medicines, and food to people inside the quarantine zone, that this mitigation measure should be eliminated from serious consideration. Um, How about it? 13 years later, they are the leaders of the panic porn, but there's a very good reason they said that. And to discuss that and more, we're going to bring on a very special guest. As I've noted, there's a lot of um, a lot of terrible things that go on on social media. But the terrific thing about it is that I've really gotten to meet a number of really good patriots, smart people that you don't see on the big Fox News uh, channels. They don't have these fancy degrees. But despite that, or perhaps because of that, they actually know what they're talking about and are putting out really good information. One of them is Justin Hart. Now, right now, you got to stop what you're doing. And if you're on Twitter, follow him, Justin underscore Hart. That's H-A-R-T, not the body part. Um, He is not part of the medical scientific community. But what he is is an information data architect in the business and tech world. Um. He uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to help his clients and his followers on Twitter. He actually was digital director for the Mitt Romney campaign. So very smart in terms of data. And that's exactly what we need to discuss what's going on here. This is actually simple arithmetic at this point. It's not even science. He lives in San Diego with his wife and tons of kids. Hey, Justin, thanks so much for listening to the monologue. Thanks for joining us today. Daniel, great to be with you here. Well, Justin, first off, I got to ask, I got four kids at home myself. How in the world are you managing the lockdown and working and putting out your information um, on the virus, you know, as your side thing? How are you doing that with kids? Well, look, I used to be office bound for the first two decades of my career. For this last little bit, I've been a consultant. So working from home is my norm already. But we're already going stir crazy because these kids have literally been nowhere else except for the backyard and the front yard. And, uh, you know, I, it, it, what am I going to put a mask on my three-year-old and one-year-old and take them around with me? Nope. Uh, it's really unfortunate. And that, but we're hanging in there. We're doing well. Yeah, I told my wife when she went out with our newborn um, to the supermarket that the newborn would get arrested. Um But yeah, I mean, those are the times we live in. Obviously, I should have had you on long ago, and this is probably going to take more than one episode just because there's just every every premise, every angle of this is very important. The timing, the numbers, the question of inflating numbers in certain circumstances, understanding the where, the demographics, the serology, um, the data on you know, lockdowns comparing the story of different states, different countries. Um, But I want to start out with, first of all, one of the things I admire about you without even having ever met you or spoken to you before this minute is I need like 1,500 words to articulate my view. I'm an article-driven guy. You somehow have this knack for using Twitter threads just to make really powerful points. And I want to start with the timing. Um... Obviously, you saw the stories from Washington State, Pennsylvania. We already had from Ohio. They found the case as early as January 7th. Now we suspect from these other states, possibly in December, which would jive with what some other countries are saying um, in Europe as well. You put out a Twitter thread a couple of days ago, and I'm trying to find it here, where you basically collated graphs from CDC data straight up from their website of excess deaths 
to demonstrate that this was likely around, let's say, as far back as December at least. And there's a lot of implications for that. And your thread was actually praised by Michael Levitt, a Nobel Prize winning scientist who has joined us in being skeptical of this. Could you talk about your findings and some of those implications for the public policy we're dealing with? Well, that was really an honor that Michael did that. Uh, I'm not nearly meticulous enough to warrant that sort of praise, but I I appreciate his nod there. Look, the, the situation is such that you have to get sort of the iceberg right, okay? What we see above the surface is just whatever happens to come across our boards from the dashboards. And it's all bad data, bad, bad, bad data. And part of the problem is that in our uh, arena, in our zeitgeist, in our media where we want to treat the virus like an election, right? Every morning we wake up, what were the results, which precincts came in, et cetera. But even the CDC will admit to you, don't trust our data until two years after the fact, right? And so we have a lot of stuff to churn through. But there's a gut feeling that you have around these things as you start to understand that really, as you described it, it's a funnel, right? In business purposes, for example, we talk about sales and marketing funnels. I put out some ads on Facebook, and that's going to lead to some leads, as we call them. I'm going to get some email addresses. Then I'm going to try to convince those people to buy my product, and then those people are going to buy my product and come back. And you see the same thing. In fact, the CDC explains to their audience and says, here are the categories. You have people that have symptoms, right? They get a little sick, maybe they have a cold. Then there are people from that sort of group of people that then in the next part of the funnel go to the doctor, right? And then there's a certain percentage of those people with influenza and everything like that then go to the hospital and a certain percentage of those people by age bracket actually die. And when you look over those funnels, you realize this is really a math problem as you described it to me. And I have a lot of experience with those math problems. So when this thing first came out, I remember I wrote an article March 9th, and it was uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love coronavirus, right? Channeling my my, uh, Stanley Kubrick there. And the idea was, look, this is probably going to be challenging in certain aspects. We don't yet know what's going on, but I know the numbers they put out were not right. Now, here are the implications. If it started in, let's say, November, some say even October, as far as China goes, the implications are, one, the transmission timeline changes big time, right? Like if, if we thought the first infection in New York was in February and 18 to 20,000 people died there, wow, something, something drastic happened there. If we know that this went back all the way to October, November, now we have a very, very different uh, perception as to what happens there. The infection fatality rate drops dramatically because the infection is probably a lot more widespread than we knew. New York, sense is a, New York City, as I said, makes a lot more sense. And again, it's just a, another huge knock against the many virologists, epidemiologists who said it was impossible that this went into 2019. Maybe in China, they said, but they said, look at, look at the genealogy of the DNA and everything else there. And I thought my, my, my second article after I wrote that you know, on March, I think it was 12th, was has it been here all along? And what I did is I looked at the flu indicators from the CDC, the influenza indicators, because the way the CDC works is kind of cool. They have a a little device that sits in about 10% of different providers and hospitals and doctors around the country, okay? And in that little device, an actual device, they plug in, guy came in, had a temperature of 100 degrees, cough and cold, boom. 
And that's how that's their what they call their surveillance network. Right. And what happened was their surveillance network started picking up hints of something that when they sent the specimens out, they couldn't define. And we see that bump for the latest data that the CDC put out last week happening up now in November and December. Whoa, whoa, sure wait, enough, wait, wait, wait. Could you, could you explain that? You're saying a bump in things coded or defined and categorized by CDC as testing negative for the flu, negative for strep, but kind of having respiratory symptoms. That's exactly right. It was, it was undefined. And so as they call it, it's an abnormal lab result, right? And if you go state by state, you can see this sort of wave of abnormal lab results happening right before the big corona hits, right? And, and we see that uh, across the nation when you sort of roll all the numbers up, that bump, if you compare it, for example, to last year, uh, or sorry, to 2008, uh, as far as November, December goes, in 2017, it's a significant bump that you see there. And this is from the CDC's own data. And so these are the first hints that we have that something abnormal is happening way back when. And if you have, again, with epidemiologists, it's all about what is the infection rate, but also what is the starting gate, right? Yes. And if the starting gate goes all the way back to November, this fatality rate of this thing goes way down, and the infection could be very widespread in certain areas. You know, the, the first comprehensive article I wrote on this was, and I can't remember, I mean, I've, I've been writing and talking about this since January. I actually, you know, like I say, so people don't accuse me of, you know, taking this lightly that it, I believe it's nothing. I actually have in mid-January a podcast titled Stop Focusing on Impeachment, Focus on Coronavirus. And you know, I'm an immigration guy. I'm very into, um, you know, a hawk on China. We're dealing a lot with the Thousand Talents program and the Chinese espionage. And then this came about and I was like, damn it, this is another reason we got to shut it off. And, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with how much travel we have there. We actually have a um, a consulate in Wuhan, which means that we have enough especially foreign students that warrant it. They go back and forth during this, the um, break, you know, in December, uh, the break between semesters to me, it was inconceivable. It wasn't brought in. I'm not, I don't know science. I'm not an epidemiologist, but that much I do study in it. And, and it was pretty, pretty obvious to me. So one of the other points I made, so, so you're right. A, the pie is much bigger. We're just seeing the, one percent tip of the iceberg but we see all the deaths and like i hope to discuss soon possibly inflated deaths too but even if we take them all face value we know the deaths but now the denominator is really much bigger then there's another element to this now that we're seeing there's a lot of people i get listeners i'm sure you get people emailing that look i you know i had this funny virus and everyone's saying that and now that we have serology they're starting to test positive for the antibodies but then you look at one thing that i, I don't know if you're shocked by but I'm at least shocked by this, the asymptomatic. So most of the things you and I knew in February and March, we know today. We just have more data to back it up. We've come full circle. We always knew who this targeted. We always knew where it was dangerous and where it wasn't, and what way is it a problem and what way is it not. Um, but one of the things I really am shocked at is the extent of the asymptomatic. We knew there was an element of it, but we now have hard data from the Netherlands, Spain, a study from France, and all of what we were seeing in the meatpacking plants, ships, um, prisons, and ICE detention facilities, which are all confined and defined full or mainly full universes, where as many as, as over 90%, especially with young people, are asymptomatic. Now we have from the Netherlands and Spain just yesterday, 
where even if you get to people in their 70s and 80s, it's like 70, 75% asymptomatic. If it's not 95, it's 70, 75. And I'm sorry, that includes mildly symptomatic as well. So it's kind of mixed in there. So doesn't that mean two things? Number one, that this is much more widespread than we think. And number two, doesn't it mean that even if lockdown or some form of it would help under some circumstance, but when we and most European countries did it, those horses long left the barn? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if comparing it again to influenza, just for sort of the breakdown of the funnel, in the 2017-18, which was sort of a high point of influenza uh, burdens, as the CDC calls them, on the populace there, there were 44 million people who they estimate had symptoms. And half of those people, 22 million, went to the doctor. And what we're finding now is that that ratio becomes vastly important in this discussion because it turns out that a wide amount of people have already gone through this, had very, very few symptoms, and a certain portion went on to be hospitalized and to die. And, and that matters for this regard, especially since the conversation has turned from flatten the curve and helping the hospitals, which never had really a chance of being overrun, to now the conversation is testing, right? So it, it, like, for example, here in California, Governor Newsom has demanded that uh, we have 15 tracers for every, I think, 10,000 people in our county, which is incredible. Like here in, in San Diego County, we've had 200 deaths, and he wants to have us have 500 tracers for all these people. And so the, the, the problem is, if it's a large asymptomatic crowd, there's no amount of tracing that you can ever do. This is actually a sales problem, too, which is how much manpower do you need to man the phones in order to get to all the leads that are coming in so that you can close them appropriately, right? There is no math equation with a population that's infected even at 5 or 10 percent where you can say we have enough manpower to trace everyone that's going through with a serology test or anything, right? There's just no question about it. So that's why it's important to understand that the implications of what this means. What this means that when it came in, because, I mean, forget about the liberty, the Constitution, that you're fundamentally altering um, the relationship between the citizen and the and the government. I mean, it's literally a second revolution. I mean, it's it's a bloodless <laughs> coup, coup d'etat. I mean, the horrible stuff that's going to come out of that. They're demanding in Washington State that that um, uh, restaurants take down the contact information of everyone who comes in there, and they're going to surveil it. I mean, it's very scary. But let's say we want to be like Singapore, Iceland, some of these countries that don't you know have our spirit of liberty. But my understanding is they did this kind of stuff that in the in the box they did it very early. But but what we're doing is we're taking a ninety percent asymptomatic, you know, very quickly transmitting thing that has been here clearly very very much in earnest for two and a half to three months. But really, on some level, since December or so. So I mean that even 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 if you wanted to, you couldn't get any results from that. No, you couldn't. And look, so, you know, South Korea is a perfect example. Right? Here's a very homogenous society that has fewer rights than we do, which has one sixth the population of the U.S. And in, a, in, in an area the size of Wisconsin, right? If that was the entire United States, yeah, we could send a bunch of temperature readers around here and, and do something like that. But we are a vast, a homogenous country, right? And we have a lot of problems that we need to, to mix through. But also just the fact of risk, right? 
I, I did some calculations and here's the crazy thing, right? If, if you are a hundred miles from New York city, you live in about 44 counties there. And that accounts for 60% of all the deaths wait, in the 60, United States. Wait, is it, is it up to 60? Cause I've been using your chart that says 54. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's growing that way. Cause uh, what's happened here is the other data thing that people need to know. This is something I discovered early on. All right. Is that the data is all wrong. All right. It's, it's not, the data will come in and it'll, it'll sort of balance out. But the most important part of the data being wrong is the dates, right? The dates that you see of death. So yesterday, for example, I think some of the dashboards showed that there were 1,700 deaths of COVID. Every, every day, every day. And I want to just pause for a minute because while you're, you're already answering it, but I want to tee it up for you that this is another huge question that I think most Americans are unaware of. So everyone agrees that the peak was at least a month ago, if not five, six weeks ago. Um, even the lockdown people are more like, oh, if you don't lock down and you open up, then you're going to have death and despair. But, you know, anecdotally and from the data of hospitalizations, it's in the toilet. The hospitalizations are in the toilet. There's nothing going on. Yet every damn day it goes up and up and up. And and even the government, their model, when they revised it down, that said about 66,000 deaths. And you go back to about five weeks ago, it looked like that's where it would head. But then suddenly, like after the peak, you know, starting three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, every stinking day, 2,000, 3,000, dead, dead, dead. And like, where is this coming from? Then we discovered the whole nursing home thing, the retroactive backfilling thing, which the two mix together. And then now really the liberal coding thing that is just really getting out of hand. I wrote about that yesterday. We don't know how many, but it's certainly literally because another thing that's important, Justin, that I understand psychologically, if you're a doctor, if you're the attending physician signing off, in, you know, in that Lombardi, New York, mid-March chaos that maybe this is like Ebola, like, you know, an IFR of Ebola, but as contagious as the flu and we're all going to die. So I understand someone gets Ebola, they test positive for Ebola and he dies. You're going to code that as Ebola death. But now that we know, now that we know this is so far wide, 90% in most cohorts, but even for seniors, no more than 50% are are uh, are symptomatic right right so you test positive so freaking what if you don't have evidence so now we're seeing in hospices nursing homes so i mean i've got emails from people i got i actually have copies of the precursor to lawsuits there's gonna be lawsuits about this coroners questioning this i'm not talking about the comorbidity issue that's something else that's the whole stratify risk of you know, but someone's 55, they have diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, they die from it. Legitimately, that's a COVID death. That's fine. It's just, you know, we're arguing, hey, protect those people. Don't lock down everyone. I'm talking about Justin. I'm talking about a situation where they are downright taking people that they tested positive, but they could have totally had an asymptomatic case. Their death had nothing to do with COVID, like we saw with the young people with the fentanyl and the alcohol overdose, and they just coded. Yeah, look, you know, there's a there's a case to be made that there are some very untoward sort of influences here. But even on the other end, let's just talk about from a data perspective, right? Like here in California, Gavin Newsom got up yesterday and said 95 people died yesterday. 95 people did not die in California yesterday. What happened is they discovered those deaths. Now, anyone can think about this, right? Everything we know happens on a county level, mostly in the United States, with a few exceptions, right? And so you're at the hospital, a relative of yours dies, 
They have to notify you. They have to notify the coroner. They have to notify the county to get the guest certificate. Now we're talking days. Now the county updates its website. If its webmaster has to be around, I think he goes home on the weekend. And meanwhile, your dashboard is out there on the state level going, hey, did we get a death there in that county? Oh, yeah, there's one right there. So they update their website. And then the COVID tracking dashboards go out and take a snapshot of it. The best way I can use to describe this for your readers to visualize it, I walk into my son's room the other day, okay? And he's 17 and he's got a bag of Starbursts that are empty, right? A big bag of Starbursts and it's got just full of wrappers, right? (laughs) Now, if I assumed that he ate all of those candies one day, I might take him to the ER right now. I'd be very concerned, just as if I'd be concerned if 95 or 1,700 people died yesterday. But they didn't because my son's dutiful and maybe let's say he took a marker and he wrote down the date of when he ate that starburst. And so there's one starburst that's on March 29th. There's another one that's on March 15th. There's some in May. There's some in April. Oh, look, here's one back in February, right? And I just discovered this because I just emptied it out for the first time. And that's what happens when you see these numbers come in on a rolling basis. The dates we are given are just the reported date. They're not the date on the death certificate. It's extremely dishonest. With the testing too, right? Yeah. In fact, general rule of thumb to your readers, if it's a death, the infection happened almost 30 days ago. If it's an actual test, a positive test, the infection happened 12 to 15 days ago. So everything you're seeing is what we call data lag. Yeah, and, and that's fine, but be transparent because most people that – I mean, I would think this if I didn't follow closely. I didn't realize this until I was like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were over the peak. What's with all these deaths? And then again, I saw the nursing home. I saw the backfilling. I saw that now we're test bombing people. So per CDC guidelines, anytime someone tests positive, even if clearly had nothing to do with that. But you're saying even if the numbers weren't inflated, at the very minimum, they're going to be backlogged. But they're using that as a pretext to say, like in my county, you know, lockdown Larry, the government governor was like, hey, you know, I'll let the county officials decide. So county officials are now becoming kings. Oh, we're not ready. Now, mind you, in Baltimore County, 80% of all deaths are in nursing homes. But, you know, there's still numbers going up and like nobody's seeing this on the ground. But he's using that to almost obfuscate the reality and act as if it's happening and it's still happening and we're not ready. And um, I mean, so that that's definitely another big dishonest factor uh, just you mentioned another thing I th- thought was um, very important about risk assessment. And, you know, we talk about the schools, we talk about younger kids. So, again, I'm looking at the data, um, and, and this is very close if you look at um, any serology test that divided up by age, uh, again, corroborated by certain realities of our tests. And I said to myself, see, you're, you're, a, you're a math guy. I'm very good at arithmetic. Beyond that, I can't do more. But I don't need more than arithmetic to do this. I'm not an epidemiologist. And I said, wait a minute. If we're seeing a hell of a lot of studies converge on point two as the top line, a lot of them really converged on that, maybe some of them a little bit more. I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something is that that in itself is a huge thing because the WHO said it's 3.4 and the panic porn media was dividing the known cases by deaths in New York and they were getting like eight, 10 percent. I said, wait a minute. So point two. But I said point two doesn't even come close to what's what the reality is, because we know now that 50 percent roughly nationwide of all deaths are in nursing homes. Some states it's 60 to 80 percent. We know, as you said, that at least 54 percent of all deaths anywhere are within those 100 counties, uh, 50, uh, 44 counties within 100 miles of New York City. I said, wait a minute. 
what's your I? We were so busy trying to get the denominator, but now we got to go back to the numerator. You can't stick the whole numerator in there because I said it's it's so heterogeneous. It is so lopsided. So I said, what if you're outside the New York area, outside a nursing home? That's one step. That That's a huge thing, even if you're 80 years old. But then I said, wait a minute. That's another thing. But now, what if you're outside a nursing home, outside of New York City, and you don't have the um, three to four main uh, known conditions? So, for example, all the studies are saying, and 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 we're seeing this, this is not just one. Th- let, let's say I'm, I'm in my 30s. So, I want to look at myself. 0. 0.007. Okay, so a whole, you know, we talk about 0.1. Okay, that one, well, that's one in a thousand. This is what one in seventy thousand, I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, look. Uh, so, so but, 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 but wait, wait, is, Justin, yep. just one more minute before yep. you comment, just to finish the point. But even that one in seventy thousand is because, and the Denmark study made made this point directly, because you're you're taking the number of people who died in their thirties divided by the cases that we think um, really exist in their thirties. But the people who die are almost to a person, the ones with those conditions. So let's say you're like me that doesn't have it. Isn't it more like being struck by lightning one in 700,000 or who knows what it is? Yeah. Well, look at it this way. Uh, someone did an analysis sort of took the comorbidity question out of it and just said, what are the risks just based on how old I am? Right. The average age is at least 80 years old for someone who has died of COVID and what they found is that for every 20 years, uh, plus or minus, in this case, minus from 80 years old, you are eight times less likely to die of COVID. So if you're 60 years old, you have an eight times lower chance of dying. If you are 40 years old, you have a 64 times less likely chance of dying. Get this. If you are 20 years old, you have a 500 times lower risk count than the 80-year-old have died in COVID. In fact, this is one way in which COVID-19 is not like influenza at all, and we can all be grateful. If it were, hundreds of kids under the age of 17 would be dead. Dozens of infants would be deceased. 174 deaths. 174 pediatric deaths of the flu uh, this past flu season. That's right. And, And one other thing to keep in mind, this domain of epidemiology and virology, because this stuff doesn't come around a lot, they don't have a lot of numbers to work off. So, for example, that really tough season that we had in 2017-18 had 61,000 deaths is what they sort of settled on. But because their numbers are so bad, they have what they call these ranges, right? You probably come to know these, right? The upper range of where we think it could be and the lower range. So it's somewhere between this upper and lower range. The lower range could have been 40,000. The upper range, 100,000. Now, here's the deal. If I come to my boss and I say, look, we could have $40,000 in sales or we could have $100,000 in sales. He's going to look at me and get better numbers, right? And and so this domain is really so out there. And and so when they talk about, for example, well, the, you know, the the fatality risk is at least 1%. It's like, maybe, but it could also be 0.2 based on your same numbers, right? Because there's not a lot to go on. We don't have a lot of confidence in this stuff. It's going to be years before we do and know the true numbers. But right now, when we see, for example, the California State University system, right, which includes like San Luis Obispo and a few other places, is actually just closing down, right? And they're, they're saying we're not going to be having you know, classes in the fall. Not yet protecting teachers, whatever else there, but it's unbelievable. The lowest, yeah, 
the lowest risk people are these youth and we should, be, you know, we should have them out there. Young 20s. And, and you know what I'm starting to find? And I'm sure you've seen this almost to a person when you see a death. Now, first of all, look, like anything you could have. Essentially, it doesn't attack that person, but you could have a statistical anomaly. But so it doesn't bother me if you do find a few cases. But even those almost to a person, you look and there's more to the story. And you, know, you had that woman, that 22 year old who just gave birth in Georgia and they went nuts over it. Four days later, she died. And the coroner's like, no, this was a rare complication from a C-section. It, you know, they're like, she was young and she was healthy and she died. Look, actually, if you see that, it's likely something really weird went on there and it wasn't COVID. And we're seeing that again and again. And so two more things on this point of the lopsided heterogeneous numbers. Um, I want to make it. And again, it, it's terrible. People don't know this. I wouldn't have known this even until a few weeks ago. I didn't realize how perfect it's disgusting. What here's what I don't understand. Um, to me, I, I I'm not above arithmetic. I'm I'm bad on ninth grade math, and to me, I was able to figure this out. But we need to go a step further. And Dr. David Katz at one of the Senate hearings made this point a remote hearing, and I thought it was very well said. He said. CDC has an obligation to put out what the, the, this age, you know, risk stratification, but really delve down even a little bit more by health status. So we know the generalities and they're very clear. But someone like my father, he's 70 years old, but he's like a boy. I mean, he, he really, thank God, really doesn't have any any issues. I mean, not, nothing systemic. So, I mean, what's his risk compared to a 55-year-old with severe diabetes and cardiovascular issues? You know, you ha- you can't throw it in one pot when it's so lopsided. What, you're going to stay away from your grandkids forever? You're going to stay away from your family? I mean, you can't. That's the point he made. And we need to know what type of hypertension. I'm hearing different things. What type? That Drill down. Tell me this, Justin. How the hell is it after tens of billions of additional funding that we threw at it that they don't have a pole bombing serology that uh, that could easily, easily vet this out. To me, them not doing it would be the equivalent of the Biden campaign not polling, um, you know, the country during during this period of, of time. To me, either they didn't do it and it's criminally negligent or they have it and they don't like what the results would show and they're refusing to publish it. You know, I have young kids and they, they, they love this show Zootopia came out a few years ago about this bunny cop and a fox who's a robber and they go into the DMV for something. And the DMV is all run by sloths in this animal world. Right. And it totally makes sense. We've all been to the DMV. I find the same with virologists, not that they're slow or lazy, but they're so cautious, right? They're so careful and they wait and they wait and they wait. And so being able to sort of put on them and say, Hey, we need you to come in and and do this like ballot returns. Like the next day we need to have the stuff. You, you see what that gets you. That gets you like a model up in, uh, you know, Washington with Murray and the IHME, a terrible, terrible model that turned out overnight. And then you get, you know, the, the real sort of grifters like the guy Ferguson over in England. Look, the, the general risk is this. If you're under the age of 65, your chances of dying of COVID are about the same as dying in your car on a commute to work. OK, and if you're over 65, it's slightly higher. Your chances of dying are like that of a professional trucker. And I'll give you another stat that'll blow your mind that I ran. I went and pulled down all the homicide numbers for every county in the country. And I found that for 100 million people or more in our country, 
you have a better chance right now of being murdered than you do of dying of COVID, right? And so when, when you see those risks, you say, look, I've got to assess this the right way. You've got me wearing masks and chained to my house here. And, and you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I put on a COVID-19, right? I'm, I'm patting my belly right now. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, well, I got to get out. My pedometer says I'm going to die. And so the, these things have repercussions that I don't think anyone thought through. And uh, I, I think it's become obvious that, you know, this is where you go, oh, my gosh, my local leaders have a lot of control of my life. I'm going to change that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what needs to happen. And the other, the the second point I want to make about the lopsided numbers is, again, like, you, you look at, I, I don't understand how, gosh, I don't, I don't want to reveal too much here, but I had a conversation with some of my buddies in the White House, and, like, they told me at that level, they didn't even know the nursing home thing. Like, just the basic point, like, you know that, the overwhelming majority of numbers coming in right now from almost every state, sometimes almost every number on a given day, are nursing home deaths. Like that changes everything for for several reasons. Number one is like if if fifty percent of all deaths in the entire country are in nursing homes, so your whole IFR thing needs to change. That means that people above eighty, as dangerous as COVID is to them, let's just say I'm making it up seventy eighty percent of those deaths are in a nursing home. So what if you're elderly and not in a nursing home? It's definitely elevated, but what exactly is your IFR? And then there's the other thing, which is that, you know, how the hell does lockdown work for an entire society if evidently it didn't work for a population that already was locked down? I mean, this is primarily a a problem in a very confined society, a very confined uh, uh, setting, and then finally, the point I wanted to make, and this is really where I wanted to get your CDC data, there's something called the CDC excess COVID deaths, where you could take a look, and this really gives you a sense of how bad the epidemic was. You see the baseline of, of expected typical deaths for a period of a few years, and you see different spikes, and then you could see the COVID spike. Now, New York, I want to get to next. That's one pile. We'll talk about that. But outside New York... What I'm finding, and tell me where there's shortcomings in what I'm saying, I'm finding that if you look at the 2018 spike, the January 2018 flu season, that spike, you are finding, depending on the state, either COVID is a little bit more, either it's the same, or in states like Texas, it's downright less. And I was one from day one that was very careful careful to say, look, comparing it to the flu is a straw man. The flu, we essentially as a nation do nothing. We're, we weren't saying do nothing. We're saying don't do nuclear warfare and chop our heads off. You know, there's a middle ground. Like that was our point. Had, avoid, you know, MLB, major professional sports, gatherings of thousands of people. But, you know, the, the shutdowns of small businesses, the, the, the shutdown of the school where there's no, you know, evidence of both of the transmission and their death, like the, the, the stuff, it will be disruptive. It will take a little bit out of the GDP, but it's not going to be a, a economic Hiroshima um, or, and destroy lives of heart and stroke patients but now i'm actually really starting to wonder if you go outside of new york if you go outside of nursing homes so are we up to maybe 17 20 000 deaths and then almost all of those are known comorbidities is this really maybe across the board outside of new york less than the 2018 flu or am i wrong well look if you take the cumulative deaths from 2718 season, the, the, the flu influenza, the sort of 
season where people die because it's winter and it's cold usually starts around September and then ends in April, May. Okay. And if you take each of those seasons right now, the 2017, 18 season has more deaths than we do this year. But here's the problem. The CDC only has that one surveillance system, right? The one that you plug in real time data. That's the only real time information. There's no device in the hospital that says, Oh, someone died of cancer. Beep. Oh, someone died of heart disease. Beep. But we do have that sort of urgency towards COVID death. So all we had up until recently was COVID, pneumonia, and flu. Those are the only real-time numbers. Well, now the numbers are starting to come in from the states, and we're able to see a few select other causes of death. That's where I talked about, for example, the deaths from these abnormal labs came in. And we have a couple other pieces. The one piece we're missing, though, is the number of non-natural deaths. We've all been staying home. We know there are fewer road deaths. So there's a divot, if you will, in the curve of what those deaths would look like contributing to all causes of death. And the question is, did COVID fill that divot? And is that why we're seeing not a big uptick? We don't know the answer right now. I think the, 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 the biggest information I'm finding, though, is that these new little data elements, like abnormal lab deaths, are telling us something was happening late last year. That's at least as much as I can tell. But in many states, you are absolutely right. There does not seem to be a significant uptick. In some states, uh, for example, uh, 1,000 people died in the state of Missouri this season, okay? 1,000 people died of influenza, right? That's 10 times what they're seeing as far as, like, I think, deaths in COVID. And and so these are perspectives because sometimes the flu hits in very, very large numbers. Up in the Seattle area, for example, this is what first got me thinking is that they had a huge flu season spike in October and November of last year. That was my first clue. Maybe something's going on. Maybe there's some leading indicator here. But again, this data is so fresh, and I know it drives the virologists crazy because they're so used to just taking their own sweet time. Uh, And of course, we're making policy on really, really bad data. Well, we're really counting on you to monitor this because believe me, there's, you know, they they will not let the cat out of the bag if if, if we're proven right. Um, But one of the things that concerns me are challenge with the excess deaths. Well, first off, let me just say with the excess deaths, the biggest thing I want to find out is nursing homes. I am certainly, certainly not denying that there is a big threat and a lot of people died of COVID there. But again, I I have I have enough anecdotes and data now that and and just common sense that is very clear that think think about it this way. Two point eight million people die a year, roughly in America. Um, The best estimates I've seen are about twenty five percent are in long long care, long term care uh, senior facilities. So, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, upwards of 400,000, 460,000 or so on a given year, you look at the two month epidemic period. Okay. So you're going to have easily 50,000, um, or so, uh, nursing home deaths to me. Um, that is a lot of wiggle room. So you literally have people that 65% die within a year, 53 or 4% die within six months. Um, the Illinois health director admitted that they are coding all hospice. And I think it's in every state, you know, even if they're in hospice care, they have weeks to live. She literally said that weeks to live. She said, as long as they test positive, if there is quote, a clear alternate cause of death, even then they're coded. So to me, now that we know, we know the following. We know number one, um, 
once it gets into a nursing home, like the prisons, like all, it, it, pretty much everyone's going to get it. Most are going to get it. Everyone's going to get it. They're going to test positive. We also now know that even among seniors, it could be 50 to 70% will be asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic. So they clearly did not die from that. We know it's very dangerous, but we know it's not 100% IFR, right? It's not, you know, it's bad. Some really have it high for males over 80, but I mean, it's not 100%. But yet we do know that they die anyway every week, a good amount, unfortunately. To me, it's inconceivable that a good percentage are not being overcoded. Um, so I would love to get my hands on excess nursing home data or what baseline nursing home deaths are. Um, do you do we have any of that any in any state? We have a little bit. Uh, there's a, a great guy, Phil Kirpin. He's on Twitter at, at Kirpin, knows his stuff very well, has been following it. Yes, yeah, so like, you know, 8,000 people die a week in nursing homes. 40,000 a month die in nursing homes, right? That was a stat I wasn't familiar with. And so it un, it's understandable. If you look at, for example, that in terms of excess deaths, he has a spreadsheet tracking that. But imagine this. Imagine if our leaders had put as much effort into protecting those most vulnerable people as it is in making sure that we were welded in our homes, right? That's, that's the sad, sad reality. And that's going to start at a local level. I, we put the fire and we found some very, very listening ears in our local San Diego supervisors. One in particular, he went back and looked because he has access to some of that data that maybe we don't uh, for HIPAA reasons or other purposes that he can look at. And he found that of the 200 deaths that we have here, about 200 deaths here in San Diego County, only six of them were true, pure COVID deaths. The rest of them were already ailing and in many cases dying of something else. And if those stats hold up, this is a scandal of, of epic proportions. It's an awful, awful, yeah, it's, it's an awful parody of the Monty Python sketch, Bring Out Your Dead, that Cuomo and Newsom had the gall to incentivize these nursing homes to take these COVID patients, it ran through there like wildfire and decimated, decimated. There were some times where 100, 100 residents died there. And not only the residents, the staff, a good portion of the staff also contracts this and dies because you're in these circumstances that mimic a very tight courted community. And if you are over that age, you're going to be having this issue. So. Sure, sure. One other thing, I, I want to move on to New York, and then and then I know we got to sew it up. It's getting late. Um, really enlightening discussion. But one other thing that concerns me with the excess deaths, and I want to ask you about the challenge of parsing that out, is that the other side. See, the other side has a lot of good things going for them. They use everything we're proven right on that they say is wrong, and they use it for their side. Like for example, now they're like, serology tests suck. But then now they're using them to add more retroactive cases and then using that as a pretext to continue shutting down counties. It's in Pennsylvania. They're complaining about that. It's kind of cute. But like another example is that they're like, hey, wait a minute, Daniel. You're saying there's an undercount? Actually, an overcount, there's an undercount. There's a bunch of people dying of COVID at home. We don't even know about it. And and, and Fauci said blatantly to Bernie Sanders at the hearing um, earlier this week that it absolutely is, is significantly higher. Now, here's the deal. I, we have much stronger data pointing to the opposite, that it's their very lockdown is, so you will see excess deaths. But so let me give you a shocking statistic. There are seven COVID deaths in the entire Hawaii. And that's trusting their, you know, coding. Seven total deaths. 
Think about that. The magnitude of that problem. Seven deaths. Now, the panic porn. Now, some of the, it's not statutory. I'm not, none of it's statutory, but I mean, it's not from the governor's edict. They shut down the ORs. The ERs weren't shut down. But the panic porn that the governmental actions and the media um, portended for people, there is a 50 to 60% decline in Hawaii hospitals. So, in, in the ERs. So to me, seven died of COVID, but behind those numbers, there's got to be exponentially more heart and stroke people dying. And we're seeing that um, in King County, Washington, and this is an article I literally just have out. I think you got it on my distribution list. Um, the steep curves of heart attacks. Um, in King County, Washington, listen to this, two sides of a coin. On the one hand, there's a 25% drop in 911 calls. On the other hand, there's a 10% increase, and the two go together, in EMTs discovering people dead at home. Now, COVID, you don't drop dead like a heart attack and a stroke like instantly. I mean, they're clearly heart attack deaths. It takes a little bit of time. It could look like a heart attack eventually, but it kind of takes time. I mean, it's not so likely you just drop dead at home. Um, what Do you think, how are we going to parse out the excess deaths when ironically and counterintuitively a lot of that is actually caused by the lockdown itself yeah we we won't know we won't know for years and i'm willing to lose this sort of short-term debate um to try to win you know smaller battles so locally here um in fact i encourage it you know, i've got my contact information right my twitter page um i have contacts with virologists who think like we do and if your county is having problems, right, if your county is basically locking you down in Hawaii, that hits close to home. My wife and I had set up because we both work from home. We were going to spend a month in Hawaii this July, and that was all canceled. Well, you don't want to go from, there. I mean, I don't know if you're a sex. I don't know if you're a sex offender, no, but can't. if you're not, then you're you're going to be thrown in jail. Those are the we, only people. We can't that go have. there. We can't go. This. And so this is this is the problem. We know that counties, for example, the local health leaders have complete control over those counties and over the state. We will bring experts to help you sort of overcome this thing. That's that's kind of my goal. When all this stuff is settled, I'm determined to set in motion some sort of nonprofit, some sort of legislative C4 that we're just going to go out there and say, look, this cannot happen again. We cannot let it go this way. It's a it's a really challenging aspect to convince people of these things. But I think more and more so as people realize that, you know, I, I see more and more people waking up to the point like, wow, maybe we really kind of overshot the mark here. Yeah, you think so. It's a it's a it's a challenging environment to work in. Uh, obviously, you want to stay safe. There are a lot of people that are at risk. Um, I'll, I'll tell you just personally, two years ago, I uh, got cut on my arm, had a staph infection, was in the hospital for two weeks. Um, and I had pleurisy, the lungs, and a bunch of other bugs that got in me, and that started my sort of side hobby of virology. Because I wanted to know, why did this little bug almost kill me, right? And so I started looking into the data, and that's where I got into the CDC data and started looking at it. So I was pretty familiar when this all came up, what was happening, and that was sort of my gut reaction. Something is off, right? And uh, I think I, I, you know, I, I wrote on March 9th that the Democrats will make this their next climate change venue, They'll accuse Trump Except of killing people climate change, and putting dollars online. Unlike climate change, yeah. they're they're succeeding. I mean, they really are getting what they want, and you know this this is this is just the beginning. It's not over. I I'll need help putting together a lawsuit in my own county. I'll have to send you information on that. Um, because again, it's an eighty percent nursing home county. You know of deaths, 
uh, unbelievable. It's so hard to tell what they're backfilling, what they're not. But folks, justinhart.biz at gmail.com. It's it, the email is at the top of his uh, Twitter page, which is Justin underscore Hart. Um, we, you know, and and you could email him if you have specific questions on just data trends. I mean, and, and that's the thing. Like, look, Justin, you know, I'm a hardcore conservative, but. Like, I also do have somewhat of journalistic intrigue. Like, I'm intrigued by what destroyed our entire country more than anything ever. Like, do, do we not want to look into that? I mean, there's some prima facie problems that, like, just don't make any sense. And it, it just, it's just shocking how there's a lack of intrigue. One of the big intrigues, and and maybe maybe we'll end it with this, this part of the, the, the discussion. I ask anyone who comes on about this theory. So it's really two questions that merge into one. Number one is, if we are right that this really was there long before, how is it that there almost seems like two levels? It seems like there's like December, January is kind of lurking around. Um, but, you know, maybe it killed more people than we think. You have the ER doctors often talk about anecdotes and people talk about anecdotes of getting sick. But you don't, certainly don't see. I, I know you're seeing a little bit of a spike, but but it's nothing that you could really miss. Um but then somehow March, it just like takes off. Yes, the media had exaggerated it. Yes, even in New York, the the panic porn. But certainly it seems it seems at least more. So if it's that contagious now, why wasn't it that transmittable then? Number one. But really to bring this to more specifically is New York. Everyone wants to know that's the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. I think that's really the single biggest element that is driving the panic porn. So, look, we know now that with the serology tests, we know that the denominator is even bigger there. So it's not 3.4. It's not 8, 10% kill rate. It, 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 it more like, let's say, 0.6, which could be three times more than any other place. Um, here's the question. What the hell happened there? If you take a look at New York, it's 8.8 .8 million people. Yes, it's the biggest city. But you look at... L.A., Chicago, Houston, Philly, you don't see anything remotely on that level commensurate. L.A. County has 10 million people, actually more than New York City, if you look at the county at least, and it has like 1 18th of the deaths. What's the secret sauce? You know, for years and decades, they've been telling us the urban area is where it's at, right? You need to go urban. It's the most efficient way to do this. Here's a stat. You're right. You can fit, for example, all of Manhattan on the west side of L.A. L.A. has 10 million people, about a million more or so than New York City, right, with all its boroughs. Uh, the density of people per square mile in New York, including the boroughs, is 25,000 people per square mile. In L.A., it's 7,000, okay, 7,000 people per square mile. And if you look at Manhattan itself, just the island there, 65,000 people per square mile, okay? That is one of the key factors there. And here's the story of what's going to come out, and it's going to be awful, which is they shut down the city, but they don't shut down the subway. Everyone's still infecting each other and probably have been. I was actually in New York in February, so I'm like, maybe I had it. I don't know. And what happened now is that the providers go home, right? All the doctors who are in New York City, they go to Connecticut, they go to other places, People that were infected start spreading around the country. We find out that that's where the primary spread came from. And then the people that are left, they have to go to the hospitals. What happens to the hospitals? Well, it's not like an airtight container there. So now you're infecting more and more people. You know, I mentioned, for example, half of the people who get the 
flu symptoms, go to the hospital. If you have symptoms in New York City, you're absolutely going to the hospital. 100% of you are going to the hospital because you're worried if you have it or not. But now if you didn't have it, you got it. And then you take on top of that the comorbidities in certain areas like the Bronx. You take on top of that um, some of the overrun hospitals and some of the issues they had, one or two places there that meet a lot of people, and it became Italy. That was what it was, basically. It was a basically mirror uh, image of Italy there. The sad case of affairs is this. Since they projected across the country that all of our hospitals were overrun, you have to keep in mind the people that projected that are the ones who hate our healthcare system. If you talk to frontline providers and doctors, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed in some of them that their profession was used as an excuse for us to lose our jobs. They said, yeah, we could have handled the surge easily, right? Some of them are very risk averse and maybe they'll have different opinions on that. But all in all, our healthcare providers and our healthcare system is fantastic. We have health insurance issues. We have health payment issues. But when it comes into getting care, even at some of the moderate hospitals, it's light years above anywhere else in the country, anywhere else in the world. I mean, and so what happened in New York was a travesty and has to do with basic sort of physics of density and the trials of an urban life. So what you're saying is definitely part of the secret sauce, but I'm going to challenge you a little bit because I'm still groping in the dark on this, trying to figure it out. So, but again, why would the IFR and be, be higher and why would that explode in march and not earlier like we you know if we if we suggest this was here much earlier what happened in march well again i think it's it's a combination of, of of problems around this and one of them you alluded to which is dying of covid versus dying with covid so if if you were going into the er for something and you didn't have COVID, you had it by the time you, uh, you know, spend an hour or two in the ER waiting room. Uh, that's just basically the reality of the piece there. So it's a, it's a really unfortunate thing. We're not going to know those numbers for years. Something very drastic and awful happened. But, but that would City. explain why more people got it. But why would the numerate, why would the fraction be tighter? Why would the, why would the fatality rate, I think we all agree now, unless there's something really funny with the data there, but I don't think it's worse than we're seeing elsewhere. It's just, you know, there's more numbers across the board. Why would it be more lethal? Everyone, so here's, and again, this is anecdotal, a lot of this, but I know a lot of people in the boroughs there, various boroughs. So first of all, let me just throw in a couple of other ingredients here. I'm a very, I mean, you know, from day one, I was writing articles yelping about the subways. Like you close everything else and you don't close the biggest thing. I believe the MIT study is right, but I just do want to throw in a caveat and it could be they address it. If subways are the big thing, why is it that Manhattan has the highest population density, likely the most subway usage, the oldest cohort of the five boroughs, and clearly it was way down from Bronx, Queens, and and, and Brooklyn? And that's, that's number one. And then also, just why would it be – I hear from a lot of people that it seems like we, we just look at the deaths, but look at the hospitalizations – it's. It does seem like New the New York experience somehow roped in more people. As a percentage, the numbers are still pretty high, overwhelmingly old, overwhelmingly comorbid morbidities. But a lot of people like sixty and really didn't have much wrong. Forty and fifty year olds with maybe a little bit wrong. But like it, it seems to have roped in more people. Did do you do you agree with that, or are you hearing that? I do. And, and look, IFR and CFR, that is the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate, 
can be influenced by regional issues. So in Italy, for example, they had a very light flu season this last year. And that meant that there was ample, forgive the term, fodder for the virus to take over and just burn through, right? And you may have seen in similar cases, um, situations that, that happen that way. Or it could be that, for example, it was just multiple infection points, you know, that it was a, a cohort of 100 people from Wuhan who came to, to New York City and it just went wildfire there. And think about, it, though, also New York said, like, for example, someone said, well, why didn't they get infected in San Francisco? Well, I, I grew up in the Bay Area and we have our BART system there, but it's mostly a commuter train. You don't use that to go to the store. You don't use that to go see people. You use it in the morning to get to work if you're in the city and maybe on the weekend once if you're going there as a teen, right? But no one uses their subway like New York uses their subway. Maybe Chicago, maybe a few other places there. I think that there's, um, there's a lot of obvious things, but I, I think uh, when you take a look at the laundry list of things it could be, it's going to take us a little bit to sort this out. Right? So, so you don't we buy into... You don't buy into the theory that some have posited that there is almost like two different strains and there was the Asian one, which explains the Asian countries and maybe the West Coast, but the East Coast and New York somehow got this Lombardi business that somehow were. I mean, wouldn't you think we would have tested that and would know that? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't buy into that just yet because I, I haven't seen the data on that come through. I'm, I, I do some analysis on DNA specs and everything else that I like to get into. Uh, the virologists, there's a couple of virologists that I really trust, and they tell me, no, nothing, nothing really evidentiary on that. And, and look, you know, I, I know we want, like, precinct-level results, but what we're getting instead is, you know, hanging chads in Broward County from this data. And so it's, it's difficult to, to assess anything this close. I mean, look, we're only just two months out for this thing when it all started, and it's just it's insane how, how quickly it has all gone, um, and we're going to have to pick up a lot of pieces here. But we need to make sure that, you know, the reactions that we have is something like this, because when an actual pandemic apocalyptic light comes at us, a lot of people are going to cry wolf. We kind of used our silver bullet on this thing, which is a moderate, difficult pandemic in New York and everywhere else. Super, super light, mostly. It, 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 re it really is. And, and again, like the reason why I'm so harping on and want to get to the truth of that, because that's their biggest ammo they used because if you think about it if you look at fauci much less everyone else everyone said what we were saying before we knew it before we knew it now we landed in the same place as mainly nursing homes heck this started out in kirkland nursing home in seattle it ends off with nursing home it's all the same narrative there's just one thing that triggered it in march it was a mixture of lombardi and new york that just really gave them this thing maybe there's some sort of either strain or or transmission load thing that could trigger anywhere and it could get you and come out and bite you. And I think that, because absent that, they could not have gotten away with what they were doing. And I think that's going to be important for us to unearth because, again, no one's going to do it for us. So just uh, that's your next assignment, Justin. Um, you know, uh, w one one thing just perspective-wise, how you talk about the the um, just the, the, the lightness of this, I was speaking to my colleague Steve Dace about this today. I said, you know what's interesting? Usually when something is that pervasive, it really starts to hit home with famous people. Famous people and politicians start dying. And the way they're making it out to be and their their reaction is commensurate with what you would think of the Spanish flu of, of, of 1918. And yet what's funny is what 
lends credence anecdotally to our level that this is more closer to lightning striking statistics for most people is that I I, want to get your comment in this thought. There's 535 members of the House and Senate. These people, a lot of them are old. Not all, but a lot of them are old. They travel a hell of a lot. They shake a lot of hands. They go a lot of places. Everyone, no matter what you, who you are, was do was not being careful well into February, if not into early March, during peak transmission of this whole thing. Um, not a single member of Congress was hospitalized, much less um, died. Not a single cabinet member, not a single associate deputy secretary of a single department or agency. But believe me, we would have heard about that. You would have had legislation named after them. I'm not done yet. Not a single governor, lieutenant governor, um, secretary of state, um, treasurer, uh, ag secretary, attorney general, no statewide elective. To to my knowledge, I did a little bit of research. I hope I'm not wrong on that. There's 7,500 state legislators and I believe Ballotpedia lists two, one ironically in South Dakota and one in um, Louisiana. That That's two out of 7,500. Um, again, these are people often older, travel a lot. Uh, I don't know of too many really famous people. Hollywood, do, do you get my drift? Something's kind of funny with that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There's a good gut feel there. there. The one, you know, we talk about IFR a lot. We talk about the fatality. We talk about hospitalization rates and comorbidities. The one question that no one seems to want to answer, and I think they don't have the data on it, at least some of them on the apocalyptic side are scared of it, which is what and we talked about it earlier in the show. What is that asymptomatic number, right? And more importantly, the study that came out a while ago saying, well, asymptomatic shedding can really cause a lot of problems, right? I haven't seen a study done on that since for like a month or more. I'd like to see some more details and some peer reviews on that because yep. right now- And based, if it did, the ship sails. Right, because based on that, we're all wearing masks. That's the only reason we're wearing masks, right? It's so funny, you know, it took the climate change people, they took, you know, four or five decades trying to convince us that what we were breathing out of our mouths was killing the world, right? And it only took them two months to convince us that what we're breathing out of our mouths will kill everyone else. And, and, and so here's the issue, right? If, if that asymptomatic number is so high, and if we can demonstrate that that shedding is basically, you know, not an issue, we just need to go about our lives. But look, we're going to have some PTSD. That's just the reality of it. Like, I'm going to be nervous if I go into a movie theater because it's in my brain, right? It's tough to get that out of that. We're going to have to, shed our fears more than the asymptomatic shedding of COVID-19 from us here. We need to get back. Look, I knew we weren't going to get this under an hour. Um, Do you have three more minutes for one more question? Yes, sure. Okay, yeah. Again, I'm sorry, you know, this has gone long, but I'm sure my audience will eat this up. Um, The the final thing, and I discussed this a little bit with Dr. James Todaro last week, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with the viral load transmission theory. So in other words, I would have thought until a couple of weeks ago, no brainer that there's not just a a quantity, you know, how many people you have in a given area. So the denominator is bigger. So you'll have a, you know, more people get infected and then therefore more people die, but the fraction will be the same, but actually a qualitative load transmission that if you're in a certain area where maybe your body could get pinged by multiple um, transmitters, somehow you get a more virulent case or you're more likely to get it. And in my mind, that 
kind of explain New York in my mind. And I don't have that. And this could be wrong. But anecdotally, it does seem that way with certain healthcare workers, transit workers. And um, and you mentioned it a minute ago. There's a third one. In my, I'm losing it here. Uh, um, oh, uh, nursing home workers. In other words, you wouldn't expect, you know, that there's a certain like like I don't scientifically, I mean, I'm just a layman. I have no idea how to explain that if that's a real theory. But my problem with that before you answer is that if you look at the prisons and ICE detentions, so the ACLU literally made this argument. And they're like, you don't understand. These are the Petri dishes. They're all going to die. And what happened was they were so right that they were wrong. In other words, they were right. It got in there. It spread. Every damn person got it. But what happened was, 95% were asymptomatic and like the death rate, like you would find it would be one out of 1300 typically in a prison. And that one guy is always the guy, um, you know, that has all of the, you know, characteristics of everyone else. It doesn't follow the younger cohorts that are typically in prisons, which most of them are. You know, I was about to write an article. Not a single person died in ICE detention when 60% of those that they tested already are positive. Right before I was going to write it, lo and behold, someone dies. Guess what happens? I find out the guy had such bad diabetes and so many surgeries, he had a missing leg. Okay, so like almost to a person, like you're not seeing the viral load theory play out in the prisons because if anything, the prisons are showing that even when it spreads like wildfire among a younger crowd, the fatality rate is remarkably low. What do you have to say about a viral, viral load transmission theory? Look, there's a vehicle that gets the coronavirus, which is what sort of sends it from person to person and turns it into COVID-19 into our bodies, right? It's called the ACE2 receptor, the ACE2 receptor. And this is one of the reasons why youth don't have uh, such a susceptibility or such an impact from this virus is their ACE2 receptors are actually in their nasal passage, okay? So when they get it, they get like a small cold. It's kind of up there. As you age, those receptors then move into your respiratory system, and that's where it really hits hard, right? When you start getting stuff on your lungs. So if you have, you know, multiple intakes on this thing and a lot of exposure, then that can create a lot of problems. Myself, I remember I got pleurisy of the lungs when I got into the hospital, and that's like apparently akin to childbirth. And it felt like my lungs were on an iron hinge. I can't imagine what sort of impact this has because this, this is a very, you know, down-challenging virus. One doctor I talked to said, it's capricious. We don't know exactly why. It affects a lot of people sometimes and a lot of people not. And, and so I, I think that we're going we're gonna to have some good ideas. We have some good guesses as to what's happened there. Um, but in truth, it, it, it really is uh, a notion that, you know, we have a good feeling as to who is at risk. And the vast majority of people are not. And um, that's, a, that's a challenging thing to get into people's heads. And there's no politician, not very, very few. I think Rand Paul is the only one who is willing to stick his neck out on this thing. Right. And I think um, they're going to pay a heavy price. You know, and by no the way, one. speaking of Rand Paul, he he got COVID, and uh, you know I would I, I wish he were 15 years older because it would be a better case study. He's only 57, but he you know he has a missing part of the lung, right. and exactly. and he got an he got an asymptomatic case. I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like again, you look at you look at the I mean, the left was all over that Spanish serology test. I mean, you saw that yesterday. Everyone's going crazy over it, and you see that even for 70 year olds, and you know. 90% asymptomatic, you go to the 80s, then it gets lower to more like 70%, I think, in the 90s, 
you know, to 50%. But again, that's very peculiar for the virus that, you know, when you get bad symptoms, you really have a much higher death rate at that age. But then there's a lot of elderly people, they'll, they'll get it asymptomatically. It's just weird. I mean... Well, look, there's a demographic issue. The whole world is based on the the joke, knock, knock, who's there, right? And when you look at different countries like Italy, for example, which had the third oldest population in the world, Spain is right up there. Spain's median age is 50 years old, right? This is something to keep in mind as you go through this. Why does the world of technology and finance and the rest of the world speak a language of a small set of islands off the northwest coast of Europe, right? It's because in the 1850s, England was the first to conquer infant mortality. You had a lot of kids before then, and a lot of them died before they were any of use to you or society. This is kind of from Mark Stein's book, uh, America Alone. And what happened was, all of a sudden, England, the median age in 1865 of London was 15 years old, which means they had population to go across the world. It was a very young population. Now, all of the modern world's all of the modern countries, first world countries, are dying. Greece is dying, right? In, in 10, 15 years, Italians, 75% of Italians will have no aunts, uncles, brothers, or sisters. Think about that. No aunts, uncles, brothers, or sisters, because they're only kids. And here in America, we're not faring too well as well. Now, there's another problem as to who, if you go look up the stats, who sort of reached that age of median age 15, and, and that'll put some scare into the life of you as well. But I think one of the things you need to keep in mind is that it's always knock, knock who's there. Here in America, our obesity rate is off the charts. It's really, really, really bad. And that's one of the reasons why we got so hit so hard. Everyone is so focused on Asia, what they did and didn't do public policy wise. But then it hit me like, holy hell. I mean, when was the last time you saw a Japanese guy that's that's obese? You know, it's a super healthy country, Singapore, Taiwan. You know, that plays a big role. Also, like you talk about age, Israel. Um, if you haven't read this piece, I'm going to make you read it for me. Um, there was a sub t- subtitle, The Passover Miracle. And so so Israel is um, the median age is 29. So that's that's one thing. There's this town I write about that they there's a very religious town and they each have like 10 kids. I'm not kidding you. They each have 10 kids and it's, it's only like 200,000 people in it. It's not huge. But because of that and they're kind of impoverished it has the population density of Manhattan, okay? And what happened was they, uh, they, they you know, they're very religious place. They, they do their own thing. They weren't following the the edicts of the, of the central government. And before Passover, they're like, screw that. The IDF went in there and put a blockade on it and no one was allowed in or out. Like, hey guys, you know, you could kill yourself. You're not killing the rest of us. I mean, we're not going to have a Lombardi here. Like that's what Israel said. We're not having a Lombardi. So what happened was after Passover, they came in to take down the checkpoint. They came in with their tools and their um, trucks to pick up the bodies and, you know, dig the mass graves and nobody died. And some of the Israeli researchers and this guy, Yinon Weiss, you might have seen him. He was cited in the Wall Street Journal as well. He wrote some really good stuff at Medium comparing different states um, and how lockdown doesn't work. And he wrote something called the Passover Miracle. And he pointed out that the median age is 17.5. It's, it's, it's astounding d- 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 uh, demography there. 17.5. And what they think happened was... The kids just bounced it around on the cheap, low risk. They didn't get killed, but 
But and by the way, this is a real life actual proof of all the European studies that they don't transmit to adults because you would expect more adults to have died. And then they downright shielded everyone because they achieved herd immunity. Something to look for. Very fascinating. Look, and in the end, this is the irony of the whole thing, right? We know that comorbidities come with low activity and with poor eating habits and obesity, right? So we're going to stick you in your houses for three months, have you eat processed foods that you can get, carb up, be really inactive, and then you can be let out into the world to face the virus. Thank you, government. Thank you, government. And, and, and Justin, we don't have time, but maybe next show, what the in the world does this portend for all of us with a myriad of viruses and bacterias, including next flu season? Imagine what that's going to do. And the very same people who caused it will turn around and say, hey, we need to do lockdown. All these people get sick. I mean, uh. <laughs> yeah, here's here's the sad part. Flu season is projected to start exactly 30 days before the election. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but the good news is if Biden wins, it will all disappear on November 5th, so we won't have to of worry course. about it then. Of course. <laughs> you know? That's why I'm rooting for the Democrats. I mean, at least we won't get destroyed. You know? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> anyway. logic, though. <laughs> anyway, folks, Justin underscore Hart, H-A-R-T. If you like what you heard, um, look at his Twitter feed as well as you could email him there. Um, anything else? Sure. You know, if, you're, if you're on Facebook, we've got a group there called Let's Get Back to Work. Um, One of the reasons I did that group is I know that there are occupations out there that are gone. I have lots of friends in event marketing. I don't know what's going to happen to them. I'm not going to go to their events with 100,000 people because they've got me kind of nervous, too, in certain ways. And so it's going to be a while before those come back. I want to help retrain people in the stuff that I do and teach them how this all works and just create an army of data-rich information architects who are helping people, businesses, and more importantly, our government understand what's really happening out there. Well, there you have it. Very well said. Super smart. Great discussion. Folks, send this show to a 100 of your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Have a great weekend. Remember Madison's warning. Popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Stay knowledgeable, stay aware, and stay free. Stay free.